Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. And welcome to the first episode of What Went Wrong in October. That's right. Yeah. It's everyone's favorite spooky month, especially my spooky black cats. Since this is one of our favorite times of year, we decided to take a little time this month to highlight some of our favorite horror movies and franchises. So, Chris, what are we doing today? Uh, Thanks, Lizzie. Today, we're going to give you all an opportunity to listen to one of our early episodes, The Exorcist. But before we get back to that episode, we wanted to spend a few minutes to talk about The Exorcist as a franchise. It may be the most haunted franchise that I have ever heard of. Uh, TBD, Chris, because we have another haunted franchise coming up later this month. We do. So there's only one movie in The Exorcist franchise worth watching, and that's the first Exorcist. I highly recommend you watch it, listen to the rest of this episode to hear about the nightmare production behind it. It's arguably the most influential horror film of all time, It was a financial sensation, grossed over $400 million at the box office. It really spawned the subgenre of possession and demonic horror, which didn't really exist before it came out. And of course, as Lizzie did such an excellent job at walking us through last time, the real monster of that movie was its director, William Friedkin. And like any successful horror film, The Exorcist spawned what, Lizzie? Sequels! Sequels. And a prequel, right? Two prequels. Two. And that's going to be the most fun thing to get to. Oh, great. Uh, I only know about one because my beloved mother dragged me to go see one in theaters. And we were both. It's one of the worst movies either of us had ever seen. Very curious as to know which one you saw. And we'll get into that. So uh, The Exorcist was released in 1973. And four years later, 1977, The Exorcist 2 colon Heretic was released. Um <laughs> to extremely negative reviews and a box office run of $30 million, which meant it made money, but that was less than 10% of what the first movie made at the box office. Fun fact, it was directed by John Borman, who had only five years earlier written and directed Deliverance. Oh! Uh, And this was one of his follow-up films. Linda Blair returned to the film. She called it one of the worst mistakes of her career. Okay. As did Max von Sydow. Ellen Burstyn read the script and just said no (laughs) and refused to come back. Uh, The director then brought in Richard Burton, 
in one of his what? later roles <laughs> to play a priest. And uh, Louise Fletcher, who had just won an Oscar as Nurse Ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, my God. Uh, and then James Earl Jones rounded out the cast. Wild cast. Uh, the plot, I will not go into much detail. It's not worth it. It's really not a very good movie. Uh <laughs> Basically, this new priest, Father Lamont, gets chosen to investigate the death of Father Marin, von Sido, from mm-hmm. the first movie. Uh, Lamont finds Linda Blair's Regan under the psychiatric care of Dr. Tuscan, who's played by Louise Fletcher, hypnotizes her. He learns that Marin had previously exercised the same demon, Pazuzu, yeah. from a boy in <laughs> Africa. He goes to Africa searching for the boy, trying to figure out you know, what's really going on. Sorry, you just said you uh, weren't going to give us a very detailed plot analysis, and then I feel like I just saw the movie. <laughs> so thank well, you, let's say, yeah, the, the plot then meanders just recklessly for an hour. <laughs> uh, so the movie runs into trouble, like, immediately. The script was rewritten over a half a dozen times by an equal number of writers. Always a good sign. William Peter Blatty refused to have anything to do with it. Um, Linda Blair said of the script, quote, it was a really good script at first. Then after everybody signed on, they rewrote it five times, and it ended up nothing like the same movie. Uh, John Borman's plan was like, let's make it like the first movie. Let's film it on location. Like the first movie felt so good because it was shot in Georgetown. So he's like, we're going to shoot in Ethiopia for the Africa scenes. We're going to shoot in the Vatican and we're going to shoot in Georgetown at the original McNeil house. And then the owners of the McNeil house were like, nope, you're not coming back. <laughs> we don't want you here. Uh, they, refu- they were denied access to the Hitchcock steps mm-hmm. where Father Harris fell at the end of the movie. So they had to recreate all of those sets on the Warner Brothers lot and as a result, they were like, we're not going to spend money to fly you to Ethiopia. This movie's just probably not going to be good. So they just <laughs> did it all on the studio lot. And it didn't really look that great. Uh, corners got cut constantly. Once again, Linda Blair was put in harm's way. There was a scene that required her character to sleepwalk to the edge of a skyscraper's roof. And this is in New York City where they shot it. And they did it with no stunt coordinator present atop of the Warner Brothers building with no special effects. They literally just had Linda Blair walk to the edge of a skyscraper and look down and they filmed it. Linda, stop saying yes to this stuff. I'm not blaming her. She no, was only 16 I know, at the time. I know, don't blame her, but like someone needs to step in and say, don't do this. I know. Uh, luckily, the director did get his karmic comeuppance. Uh, John Borman, during filming, contracted a case of something called San Joaquin Valley Fever. That's not a thing. Nope. Sounds like a type of moonshine or something. Uh, apparently, it's a fungal respiratory infection, Ew. and it required them to shut down production for a month while he recovered. Then a lot of the footage was destroyed because it was processed incorrectly. So it was like hypersaturated, making them reshoot it. And then the climax, which involved thousands of locusts flying around, kept being delayed because all the locusts that they were importing from England were dying too fast <laughs> to be filmed. The movie's editor quit the production and lead actors Kitty Wynn and Louise Fletcher both came down with simultaneous gallbladder infections. Whoa. I don't know. Don't know how. Pazuzu uh, hates your gallbladder. <laughs> yeah. William Friedkin eventually saw a half hour, the first half hour of the film. He was at Technicolor for a different movie and they were like, hey, we just finished processing The Exorcist 2. Do you want to see it? He watched a half hour and he said... I looked at half an hour of it, and I thought it was as bad as seeing a traffic accident in the street. It was horrible. It's just a stupid mess made by a dumb guy, John Borman by name, somebody who should be nameless, but in this case, should be named. Scurrilous. A horrible picture. All right. So he really just went to town on it. Listen, uh, so I movie, love Deliverance, so that upsets me a little Deliverance bit. Deliverance <laughs> is great. Um, John Borman gets a, gets somewhat of a pass for Deliverance alone. Um 
So then, you know, a few years pass, and in 1990, uh, William Peter Blatty returns to the franchise with The Exorcist 3, which he would end up writing and directing. So the way that this thing starts is, like, in the 80s, William Peter Blatty's like, hey, I have an idea for an actual sequel to The Exorcist. He pitches it to Warner Brothers, and they're like, great. And they hire William Friedkin to come back on to be the director. It's like we're getting the team back together. And then everybody gets into creative disagreements. Blatty's so dismayed at the development hell that he decides he's going to turn it into a novel. So he writes it as a novel called Legion. And then Warner Brothers is like disinterested at this point. So they let the project go. And then he takes it to this company called Morgan Creek Productions. And he's like, hey, I want to adapt this into a screenplay. And it'll be like the third Exorcist movie. And Morgan Creek says, great, we want to make it with you. 20th Century Fox will distribute. We just need a director. So Blatty turns to John Carpenter and says, uh-huh. hey, do you want to direct this new Exorcist movie? And Carpenter's like, great. And so they have a movie. And then during the scripting phase, once again, creative differences. Carpenter respectfully leaves the project. And Blatty decides he's going to direct it himself. Uh as his directorial debut. So once again, a strong cast gets assembled for the film. George C. Scott is the lead. Brad Dourif plays this like serial killer person. And Jason Miller... uh, Wormtongue, Yes, exactly. And uh, Jason Miller reprised his role as Father Karras through flashback. They did shoot on location in Georgetown. They finished production on time and pretty much on budget. However, four months into post-production, Morgan Creek Productions and 20th Century Fox call it Blatty because they've just seen the director's cut of the movie. And they're like, hey, what the hell? And Blatty's like, what? (laughs) And they go, this movie's called The Exorcist 3 and there isn't an exorcism in it. (laughs) And Blatty's like, I know, there wasn't one in the book or the script. And I guess they just maybe assumed he was going to like put one in the movie at some point. Oh, no. So... 20th Century Fox gives them an additional $4 million, which is like another 30% of their budget, to reshoot a whole new ending that's like a special effects-driven exorcism for the climax of the movie that didn't originally exist in the movie. So the whole last third is like made up on the fly. Blatty hated the exorcism ending so much, he tried to get his original ending in there. The studio wasn't having it. He tried to get them to change the title of the movie because he knew that audiences would be tainted by the reception of The Exorcist 2. But they wouldn't do it. He wanted them to call it Legion and just that. And so this is in Blatty's words. I begged them when they were considering titles not to name it Exorcist Anything because Exorcist 2 is a disaster beyond imagination. You can't call it Exorcist 3 because people will shun the box office. But they went and named it Exorcist 3. Then they called me after the third week when we were beginning to fade at the box office. And they said, hey, we'll tell you the reason. It's going to hurt. You're not going to like this. The reason is Exorcist 2. We're surprised. And I couldn't believe it. (laughs) They had total amnesia (laughs) about my warnings. So uh, apparently later, Blatty sought out the footage from the film to try to assemble his director's cut and release it to the public. And Morgan Creek told him that all the footage had mysteriously disappeared from storage. And they were never able to complete the director's cut, except for a mythical VHS copy that apparently Blatty has like somewhere in his estate. He's since passed. Uh, Zuzu also very against director's cut. Yeah, so just a quick other note. the mo- This movie, The Third Exorcist, became a focal point of the trial of Jeffrey Dahmer. Detectives in that case testified that Dahmer claimed that he identified with the Gemini killer, which is Brad Dourif's character in The Exorcist 3, and that he would actually play the movie for some of his victims before killing them. Oh, no. Uh, Dahmer's final attempted victim, Tracy Edwards, testified that Dahmer would rock back and forth, 
chanting and then he would tell her that he enjoyed this sequence about the possessed Karis from the film and he'd like describe it to her. Uh, he even bought yellow contact lenses that he would wear to look like the possessed Jason Miller from the movie and from the first movie before killing his victims. So pretty gnarly uh, twist here. But of course, Lizzie, as you mentioned, we still have the prequel Hell yeah. to talk about. Uh, so 14 years after this, Morgan Creek Productions is like, we actually own the chain of title for the Exorcist franchise. We should totally make some more money off of this. Like, let's go back to the ATM. And so they're going to do a prequel slash reboot. And they hire John Frankenheimer to direct it. Now, you might remember John Frankenheimer as the director who was hired to replace Richard Stanley on the island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, right. Directed the Manchurian Candidate and kind of the end of his career got a little dicey. Frankenheimer comes onto the project, gets it through prep, and then due to health issues, has to leave the film and dies a month later. So John Frankenheimer dies during prep, basically, of this new film called Exorcist, The Beginning. I think this is the one I saw. Does this... Okay, keep going. Yeah, we're getting to it. So so he dies, the movie's without a director, and Morgan Creek Productions turns to Paul Schrader, famed writer of Taxi Driver. And he comes on to direct the movie, and the film's supposed to follow... Father Marin, originally played by Max von Sydow, yes. as he battles, the, his, he does the original battle against the demon Pazuzu, who would later face in the original Exorcist. The plot is simple, uh, not at all, actually. Marin <laughs> is forced to commit like this atrocity execution during World War II. He, his faith is shattered. He leaves the church, becomes an archaeologist, and then discovers a church that's been built over like a bunch of evil crap. And then he battles with demons. And there's like a bunch of random storylines involving like natives and the military. And of course, Max von Sydow at this point is far too old to reprise the role. So they hire Stellan Skarsgård. Yeah, 100%. This is what I saw in theaters. Well, actually, you don't know which one you've seen yet, and we'll get to that. So Stellan Skarsgård comes in to play the role, and in an odd twist, Max von Sydow, when playing the older Marin, was in his 40s in the first Exorcist, and Stellan Skarsgård playing the younger Marin was actually in his 50s for the (laughs) new movie. It's a very weird uh, chronology. So Schrader shoots the film, delivers the director's cut to Morgan Creek, and Morgan Creek again has buyer's remorse. They've like cut a teaser of the footage and released it to theaters. But when they see the director's cut, they're just like, oh, my God, this movie's so boring. <laughs> and they shelve the project. They fire Schrader before he finishes it. They've spent $30 million on the movie so far, but it tested poorly. And they're like, it's too intellectual. It's not scary enough. So rather than move on, they hire a new director, Rennie Harlan, who just directed Deep Blue Sea a couple of years earlier. Oh and they're like, God. Rennie Harlan knows how to get the audience's blood pumping. So they bring him in and they decide they're going to try to reuse as much of the footage from the first movie that Paul Schrader shot as possible. So they rehire Stellan Skarsgård. They hire the same cinematographer. They've got Rennie Harlan. But then one of the other main cast members, Gabriel Mann, who plays a young priest, is no longer available. They have to recast him. So they end up basically reshooting the whole movie with the same cast and the same cinematographer and basically the same plot. So it's it's virtually the same film. It's just stylistically different and it's more like big scare horror oriented. So Stellan Skarsgård shoots the same movie back to back and the second shoot costs $50 million. 
So they've spent oh $80 million at this point. They add some like exposition and a big, of course, another big possession to the end of the film. And then they release Harlan's film and people hate it worse than the Schrader cut. So they release Harlan's film and it's called Exorcist The Beginning. And it gets terrible reviews, 11% on the tomato meter. It gets two Golden Raspberry nominations. William Peter Blatty said of it, Exorcist The Beginning was his most humiliating professional experience watching that movie. Morgan Creek has spent $80 million and this movie's only made $75 million at the box office, so they're not going to break even on it. So then they go back to Paul Schrader and they say, hey, you want to finish <laughs> the movie that we took away from you? And Paul Schrader's like, sure. So they give him $35,000 to finish editing his original version of the movie under the new title, Dominion colon prequel to The Exorcist. So they've just released what? they've just released Exorcist colon the beginning, and now they're going to make Dominion colon prequel to The Exorcist with the same cast and the same characters. The thirty five thousand dollars isn't actually enough to finish the film. Schrader couldn't conduct ADR, so it's got like bad sound in it. He couldn't bring the same cinematographer back for color correction, and they couldn't afford an original score. So. They chopped up the score from Rennie Harlan's version of the film, placed it in the movie, and where there were gaps, they hired Angelo Badalamenti, who scored Twin Peaks, and this American metal band called Dog Fashion Disco to basically work for free and uncredited, is my understanding. And they put together like another 14 to 20 minutes of score that kind of fleshed out the rest of the movie. Wow. And then Morgan Creek releases that movie six months later in May of 2005. So there were two almost identical Exorcist films released within almost six months of each other at the American box office. Why would you do that? It was released in 110 theaters. It made $250,000 at the box office. Uh, Moviegoers were just confused. Like a lot of people were like, did they re-release the same movie under a different title? Like it was Stellan Skarsgård in both. So like you didn't know which one was which. Uh, although it did get better reviews than Rennie Harlan's film with 30% on the tomato meter. So uh, I think it's the only time in Hollywood history that they've made the same movie twice with the same cast and then released both versions within a year uh, of each other. So truly a cursed franchise. William Peter Blatty died in the last couple of years. But of course, The Exorcist never really dies. And it was recently announced that Morgan Preak Productions is planning oh, a no. reboot to be released in 2021. So get ready, because we still have more Exorcists to get through. Uh, and that's no. that's the story of like the just like disastrous run of sequels and prequels created based on the original Exorcist. Please don't watch any of these movies. They're all... To, Exorcist 3 is okay, but the others are just awful. Instead, watch The Exorcist, listen to Lizzie's amazing deep dive on what went wrong on that set, and uh, of course, have a spooktacular October. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. 
Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. <laughs> All right, here we go. Ah! Cut, cut, cut. And action. Hello and welcome to What Went Wrong, the podcast that explores what went wrong in famous movie productions from massive blockbusters to major movie flops. I am Lizzie Bassett, as of course you all know. And I am Chris Winterbauer, as fewer of you know. (laughs) Welcome, Chris. What movie are we talking about today? Today we are talking about the wonderfully twisted uh, childhood ruining movie, The Exorcist. Uh, which I saw when I was way too young. Uh, I did too. And my experience watching this as a little kid was that I thought it was really dumb and not scary at all. And then I watched it again as an adult and I just like tears were shooting out of my eyeballs. I was so scared. <laughs> I think it's more upsetting to grown ups <laughs> than it is to children. For sure. For sure. Um, obviously, this is one of the best horror movies ever made. I don't think anybody can argue against that. Uh, I do want to get one thing Uh, Out of the way at the top here, yes, there was a convicted murderer in this movie. It is the radiographer with the sort of chin strap beard and bad Caesar haircut a la George Clooney in ER um, when Reagan goes to get the arteriogram at the hospital. He's also potentially a serial killer who may or may not have been active during the time of the movie. Uh, no, we're not really going to talk about him because the behind the scenes in this movie is actually so batshit crazy that an active serial killer is not the worst of their problems. <laughs> Who killed gay men. Yeah. And that is the basis of the movie Cruising. He, well, it's William based on Friedkin a book, did. but he did base parts yeah. of Cruising on uh, Paul Bateson, who is the name of that serial yeah. killer. But if you want to learn more about that, I feel certain there are some true crime podcasts that will cover it. Uh, point being, I also think they talk to him in Mindhunters. They do, two. they do. We just yeah. saw that. Small world, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. <laughs> um, so now that we have that out of the way. Let's dig into what went wrong in the production of The Exorcist, because technically, uh, that radiologist murdering people was not a problem for them in this production. No, he was a real pro on set. <laughs> <laughs> he nailed it. <laughs> Okay, (laughs) so The Exorcist was released on December 26th, 1973. What a lovely release date. Oh my God, that's weird. (laughs) Warner Brothers really leaned in on this one. Um, It was directed by William Friedkin, uh, written by William Peter Blatty. Um, About Friedkin, cinematographer Owen Roisman said, it was a very difficult film. Uh, Billy was reaching for the limit. He was committed to it and he was obsessed by it himself. And that obsession was contagious. So it's kind of a little hint at where we're going here. Just a brief setup on this. It stars Jason Miller as Father Karras, Ellen Burstyn as Chris McNeil, Max von Sydow as Father Marin, and of course, Linda Blair as Reagan McNeil. And Chris, do you want to set up the plot a little bit? 
yeah, so the movie follows Reagan McNeil, a 12-year-old girl, as she is possessed by a demon uh, and her mother's attempts to cure her daughter, eventually enlisting the help of the local father, Karis, uh, Italian-American or Greek-American priest. Greek, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, eventually Max von Sydow's uh, more experienced character, uh, Father Marin, who may or may not have a history with this demon traced back to his time in Africa and Iraq. Very uh, good. So did you did you watch it recently in preparation? I watched it last night. Oh, okay. What are your yeah. what's your sort of feeling having just watched it? Uh, it's an exceptionally well made movie. It's a very strange movie. It's a very slow horror movie. Like I watched it with my wife and uh, the whole like Iraq prologue that arguably like has no bearing on the plot yeah, in not a lot at all. of ways. <laughs> it takes like fifteen minutes of the movie. It's great. It sets the tone. It's like a really cool sequence. Uh, I'm sure it was very expensive. That would be 30 seconds in like a modern mm-hmm. horror movie. You know what I mean? And then the nothing really happens for the first 40 minutes or so mm-hmm. until like Reagan comes downstairs and pees herself. And I, well, my favorite part of the movie actually were the cutaways to father, like just developing Father Karras's character yeah. across the whole first half. Loses his mother, questioning his faith. He's a psychiatrist. Anyway, it was a... It was a much more layered and slower movie than I remembered it being. Yeah, it's also interesting because, uh, as many of you probably know, when audiences went to go see The Exorcist, there were, you know, all these stories about people fainting and vomiting in the theater. And, you know, they're lining up around the block to see this. It was an incredible, massive, massive box office success. Actually, the most successful horror movie of all time until it was surpassed by it in 2017. But it's interesting. The parts that people were throwing up and vomiting at actually were not the possession parts. It was the medical procedures, um, which honestly, like I couldn't even look at that when we were when we were watching it. It was it's it is really upsetting. Yeah, the cerebral arteriogram is apparently like what doctors have said, like that's the most realistic medical procedure put on film, like at the time. Yeah. Is what we'll say. And at the hands of a serial killer, what more could you ask for? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Steady hand. Okay, so uh, what went wrong? Um, the movie is obviously incredible, but the way in which it was made, I would argue, is not. Um, today we're going to talk a lot about the treatment of the actors on the set because it was it was bad. It was just bad. <laughs> it's worth noting that the 70s was really a sort of auteur era for directors. You've obviously got Coppola, Kubrick, Mike Nichols, um, and all of these guys are part of what's known as the New Hollywood era. And just a brief setup here. Basically, up until the mid-60s, you were still dealing with the studio system in Hollywood, um, where the studios held really every level of power. Um, and the director, while in charge, didn't have anywhere near the kind of autonomy that we think of them having today. And Chris, do you know what happened that sort of started to dissolve the studio system? Was this the Congress passing the uh, anti Vertical integration law that separated agencies from studios? Basically what happened is it was decided that studios were violating the Sherman antitrust law because they were just employing entirely vertical integration. They owned every part of the process from the the theaters themselves uh, all the way up to the contracts on the directors, the crew, the actors, everything. So... As that starts to crumble, the new Hollywood era ushers in all of these directors who are given pretty much completely free reign on their sets. And you have this pretty dramatic shift in power from the studio to one person, and that's the director. 
Um, we're actually going to be talking quite a bit about the new Hollywood era over the next two episodes um, with two films that encompass it even more than this one. And we will give you a little teaser at what those are a little later in the episode. So The Exorcist is based on a 1971 novel by William Peter Blatty of the same name. And he also wrote the screenplay for this. It is loosely based on a true story. Um, Not particularly important for our episode. Interesting to look into if you want to. Stanley Kubrick, Arthur Penn, and Mike Nichols were all on the studio's list of directors for this, but they passed. Uh, Eventually, Mark Rydell, who I had not heard of him, but he did uh, direct on Golden Pond. He also had just come off of The Cowboys and some other things. He's hired to direct this. However, William Peter Blatty happens to go see a screening of a movie called The French Connection, and he decides the studio Mm. has the wrong man. Of course, The French Connection is directed by William Friedkin. And have, you've seen that movie, right, Chris? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great movie. How would you describe it? Thrilling. Real. Raw. So real and raw is exactly what captures Blatty about this movie. That's what he sees and he says, that is what I want for The Exorcist. I want it to feel as real as possible. He frequently keeps talking about how he wants it to have a sort of documentary realism. Hmm. So he convinces the studio to actually buy out Rydell's contract. They bring Friedkin on right away. Wow. Blatty comes to him with a script. Friedkin gives the script one look and just throws it out. <laughs> he, he actually decided it was not close enough to the book. And he literally sits Blatty down, goes through the book section by section, like dog-earing the pages that he wants in the movie and dictates to Blatty, the author of the book and the screenwriter, exactly what he wants the movie to look like. So you're kind of already seeing the kind of control that he has over this project. And I also want to say, like, he's not wrong. The movie is incredible. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He picked the right moments. Yes, he did. So casting begins. And again, the studio wants big names. Now, in the past, they would have gotten exactly what they wanted. But Friedkin pushes back and says, no, that's not the right move. Um, actors the studio wanted, they wanted Marlon Brando in the oh, Max, <laughs> Max von Sydow <laughs> role. Um, they I wanted Jack Nicholson. Brando. I know. Oh, God. They actually wanted Jack Nicholson as Karis, which would have been interesting. They, however, end up with Jason Miller, who is a playwright who had actually just won the Pulitzer for his play that championship season. He'd never been in a film before. He had, however, studied for three years to be a Jesuit priest before dropping out after a crisis of faith, pretty much exactly like Father Karras. A couple more things. Blatty actually wanted Shirley MacLaine, who he had written the part for in the book, but her Mm. team backed out when they found out that he was insisting on writing the screenplay and producing the movie. Uh, Jane Fonda was also offered the role, but she called it capitalist bullshit and turned it down. <laughs> like Jane Fonda was just calling everything capitalist bullshit in the 70s. That's like it, cool, though. it actually yeah. makes no and sense. And now she makes a Netflix show. So like, let's just be honest. <laughs> That's okay, cool. Jane. Uh, anyway, we end up with Ellen Burstyn in the role of Chris yeah. McNeil, who is the mother. Um, she's amazing in it. She really heavily pursued this. She was friends with Friedkin, and she called him and was like, this is my part. So he winds up with an incredible cast, but not definitely not the cast the studio was looking for. By the way, also, Max von Sydow, he's 43 years old when they filmed this, which means he's at least 30 years too young to play the part of uh, Wait, Lancaster Max- Marin. Yeah. Wait, he was 43 when they shot this? 43. Yeah, that's old age makeup on him. He looks 100 years <laughs> old in this movie. He's 43. He, no. Yes. What? 
Not even, gonna lie. He's a very even, handsome 43. <laughs> no, sure. But even with old age makeup, he looks so old no, in this it's movie. Like, honestly, I was watching makeup tests. The makeup artist is Dick Smith, who's like absolutely incredible. And watching him put the makeup on Max von Sydow, it, it really is the makeup. Like, wow. I think it's because they don't actually do that much. They just do a lot to the texture of his skin. Oh, yeah. I just pulled up a photo of like with and without makeup. That is so shocking yeah i would have guessed he was 73 no, in this movie he's 43 i actually would have guessed 100 as i said <laughs> 100 years old wow that's crazy well so it's interesting. interesting because like friedkin has has cast somebody who's literally at least 30 years too young mm-hmm. in in the role of the exorcist but that's mm-hmm. who he wanted and you know what it's great yeah so last but not least, we get to casting Reagan. And I want to read a quote from Friedkin about what he says happened when Linda Blair walked in the door of the New York office uh, where he was working on this. I was in despair. My office in New York where we filmed the interiors and where we edited the film, it was at 666 Fifth Avenue. My secretary buzzed me and said, there's a woman out here named Eleanor Blair, and she doesn't have an appointment, but she's brought her daughter with her who's 12 years old. She walked in the door and I knew instantly that she was the one. She was very cute, smart, adorable, not beautiful, but really very giving and open and just a lovely young girl. I said, Linda, do you know what The Exorcist is about? She said, yeah, I read the book. It's about a little girl who gets possessed by the devil and does a whole bunch of bad things. And I said, like, what sort of things? She said, well, she hits her mother across the face and she pushes a man out of her bedroom window and she masturbates with a crucifix. Oh, And I looked at her mother, who was smiling. I said, do you know what that means to masturbate? She said, it's like jerking off, isn't it? I said, have you ever done that? She said, sure, haven't you? And so I hired her because I knew she could handle this material with a sense of humor. How old was this child? 12. Oh, my God. Well, hold on, because (laughs) as I was doing research, this is the first indication to me that Friedkin's perception of his actors is maybe not entirely in line with reality. I want to listen to a little clip of Linda herself talking about the masturbation scene as an adult. I didn't understand what masturbation was at that age. Um, So I didn't understand, you know, I had, there was a box and a sponge and Cairo syrup with red food coloring. And uh, that was between my legs. So I just had to put the cross into the box. That's all I was doing. I had no idea what it was until many years later. So very different than Uh Friedkin's recollection. Very different. Jesus. Yeah. Dark. It is. I I think it's very indicative of sort of how he wanted to see the actor's involvement Mm -hmm. in this and, and how he wanted to feel about, I guess, the way that they felt about the project. Mm-hmm. So production begins in 1972. Now, the first thing that goes wrong is that a bird flies into a circuit box on the set, ends up setting a fire that burns down almost the entire house set with one exception. Chris, can you guess which part of the set didn't burn? Her bedroom. Yep. Completely untouched. That's creepy. Mm-hmm. It sets them back almost six weeks. Uh, so we're going to go back to Owen Roisman again, who's the cinematographer. He says, Billy and I had a relationship, so I wasn't afraid of him, but a lot of people were. He did fire plenty of them, and a lot of other people quit. The makeup artist Dick Smith quit three times. Each time, Billy had to talk him into staying. He can be the most charming guy in the world when he wants to, but he's also the biggest schizophrenic I know, completely warm one minute and just venomous the next. 
That's fun. Uh-huh. Uh, Sounds a little bit like the demon that's possessing Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, I was just thinking about how, like, with um, with Linda Blair, it's entirely possible that she even said, you know, when he says, you know, do you know what masturbation is? And she says, oh, yeah, like, you mean jerking off. It's entirely possible that she, she said that without know. having any idea what that was, just that 100%. somebody said that. And then he's just like, oh, great, this precocious 12-year-old. Yeah. I agree with great. that. Yeah. yeah, I think she's. I think she's telling the truth that she had no idea. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, especially when you're watching footage of her behind the scenes in this, like, I, I think it's very clear that she doesn't fully understand what's going on. She is amazing in this movie, by the way. Yeah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So let's get into Friedkin's directing style for a minute because it is interesting. The first thing we're going to talk about is his affinity for slapping actors. (laughs) (laughs) The classic slap method. I I know it well. (laughs) So uh, let's take a listen to what he says about the time that he uh, slapped a priest. Great. Here we go. Do you physically attack people you work with? There, there have been occasions. Yeah, you've slapped people before, haven't you? I, yeah, well, a priest in The yeah. Exorcist. He was not an actor. He was a priest. And it was 4 o'clock in the morning, and we were freezing. And he had to give the last rites to his friend who had just plunged from oh, the top of a flight of steps. And the crew was there and freezing, and we did about 25, 30 takes, and he wasn't getting it. And he couldn't reach the emotional point. And I had read that other great directors had done that. John Ford, George Stevens Just had done that. Whack. Yeah. And uh, I first asked, I took him by the shoulders and I asked him if, if, he, if he loved me and if he trusted me. And he said, you God. know I do, Bill. I said, okay, and I told the cameras to get ready. And I hit him as hard as I could across the face. And I said, roll it. And he went right into the scene. The shock of it, the shock brought forth the tears. And afterwards, he embraced me and thanked me. You can't pull that car uh. too often, though, can you? No, I, 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 I've, I haven't done it more than 570 times. Uh, I will say, <laughs> of all the people he could have slapped on this movie, yeah. I'm most okay with that guy. <laughs> You're about to be a lot more okay about that guy because uh, it was reported, he was recently accused of having molested a student at the school he taught at in the 80s. So I will say that slap may have been deserved, but not for the reasons Friedkin thought it was. Fair. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, boy. Um, 
Also, that priest talking about it later, remember that moment where William Friedkin says, I asked him, do you trust me? Mm -hmm. The priest's response when talking about it was, you always trust someone until they ask you if you trust them. Yeah, exactly. Which it's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is all coming from a place of him wanting everything to look as real as possible. It's coming Mm -hmm. back to that sort of documentary style filmmaking that is exactly what appealed to Blatty in this process. So some other things that Friedkin did to, to try and achieve that reality. Um, He was obsessed with making the makeup look real. The prosthetics that were used on Linda Blair actually burned her skin and sometimes took up to five hours to apply. Also that infamous scene where she does the sort of backwards crab walk down the stairs. um, It's actually not in the initial theatrical release, which I did not know. It's not because I just, that's the version I watched last night and it's not not in it. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same thing we did. Um, So the reason for that is that he didn't like that the stunt woman and contortionist had to use wires to go down yeah. the stairs yeah, and they were somewhat visible. So they took it out later on when they were able to digitally remove the wires, he allowed it to go back into the edit. I think around the year like 2000 almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's actually pretty late um, that that shows up. Yeah. So all of the effects had to be practical. The room itself was sitting on eight pneumatic wheels. Anytime the uh, film set appears to be shaking, it's because grips are literally physically shaking mm-hmm. the room. Also, you may have noticed that, especially towards the end of the film, you can see their breath because it's so yeah. cold in her room. Obviously, if this were now, they would just do that digitally, but it was 1972, yeah. so they actually refrigerated the set. Um, and I want to play a little clip that describes exactly how cold it was. Just shooting the exorcism in general was difficult. It was very time-consuming because on a technical level, we had to run the air conditioners while we were setting up and preparing. The only reason we wanted the room to be cold was because we had to see the breath. And the catch-22 there is we had to refrigerate the room with air conditioners in order to see the breath. Well, you see the breath usually with moist cold, and air conditioners take the moisture out of the cold also. Because it was dehumidifying at the same time, we had to get it to like 20 below zero before you'd even see the breath. Oh my God. 20 below zero. I heard an urban legend once that it snowed inside it's true. the set. No, it's true. Oh, they really? S- it's true. They said they came in one morning and there was a thin layer of snow on the set. Yeah, I heard that it like it created its own atmosphere yeah. inside because it was so cold. Oh my God. It was so God. cold and they had kept it so cold for so long. Oof. And by the way, there's all these pictures of them on set and like all the men are in these freaking ski suits, you know, Mm -hmm. like head to toe covered. Linda Blair is in a damn nightgown and she's 12 years old. God, this movie sounds so miserable to make. Horrible, horrible. So the biggest thing for him was he he didn't just want his actors to look frightened or startled. He wanted them to actually be frightened and startled, um, which, by the way, is not acting. Um, you know, whatever. And one of his fra- favorite ways to achieve this was to actually fire off guns right next to their heads without any warning. What? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so like he, a prop gun or something? No, no, no. Like a real gun. Um, and they did not always have blanks in them. So oh my god. He actually. So he really pissed off Jason Miller, who played uh. Father Karras. Um, there's a scene when uh, Damien, 
Karis is listening to the tape that he's just recorded of mm-hmm. Reagan speaking. And if you remember in that scene, he's kind of crouched in front of the tape recorder. He's listening. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the phone rings yeah. and his head snaps like a gun has gone off. Now that is because William Friedkin fired off a shotgun right next to his head. Oh my God, that's <laughs> awful. However, I will say, having directed a scene where somebody has to react to a phone, uh, we had to use like a, one of those portable air horns because people anticipate the phone and you can tell, uh, but I would never use a shotgun. <laughs> Let me tell you what you don't anticipate, a shotgun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, lo- I, I bet you the prop guy brought him an air horn and he was like, I'll take the shotgun. Here's how bad the uh, gun situation actually got on set. Uh, <laughs> like there's a gun situation. It's like yeah. we have to take his guns at the top of the day. Oh my god! So Max von Sydow would actually walk on set every morning, and he would ask the cinematographer where the guns were that day, <laughs> and Owen would tell him. Uh, it's and- like Michael Scott doing improv in the office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, no. Give me your guns, Michael. <laughs> it's William Friedkin on the set of a movie. <laughs> Literally. Oh, what a psycho! Uh, yeah. So von Sydow oh. said that Friedkin behaved like a man with total freedom and total power which is exactly what he was doing. Uh, However, probably the most irresponsible instances on set have to do with the stunts and the safety of the actors, um, particularly Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn. So the first scene that we're going to talk about, and this is, this is pretty infamous, but it's the scene where she is on the bed. She's not fully kind of transformed yet. Um, She's in that sort of white nightgown, like on top of the sheets and she's being tossed up and down mm-hmm. um, on the bed, and she's flailing. And then the part that we're about to hear her talk about is when she starts to be pitched forward into a seated position and back position oh, yeah. over and Which, over and over at again. At first, I thought that was a, um, a dummy or a no. model when I first when I was because I was like, it's moving too fast. That can't be a person. It's her. And, it's, and then you, if you pause it, you can absolutely tell that that is a. 12 year old girl who is just being whipped at like roller coaster speeds on this bed. Yeah, so let's hear Linda talk about that moment because she'll actually explain what happened. I said to Billy, if I was a devil, I'd get up and, and grab her and I would thrash her. I would let her know. He said, go ahead and do it. It's a rigging that Marcel Vocateer came up with that was a mold of my back and it was a, like a hard metal. And then they had like a, a brace around my stomach. And then it was laced up on the sides. I had her completely strapped in. And I could, I had her. It was actually manually pumped by some big men <laughs> on the other side of the wall. I could throw her up and back and I had her. And the lacing came loose while I was being thrown. And so as I went forward, the piece was coming back. So it was a constant. And I, the dialogue was, please make it stop, make it stop, it hurts, it burns, whatever. She started screaming. I didn't know what to do. And so I'm just yelling, it hurts really, really. And somebody thought I yelled, Billy. And I actually never broke character. She wanted out. She wanted really out. She was really getting thrashed. That's the footage I use in the movie where I'm crying my eyes out because they are brutally damaging my back. I mean, it's hard to listen to when you actually have the context of like... Even when you're watching it, you can tell... Yeah. You know what I mean? There's something not right about it in the movie itself. 
Yeah. It doesn't feel like movie magic. You know what I mean? It's just it's like, not. oh, let's just abuse someone on camera. And that'll yeah. give us the effect that we need. She's 12. Uh, and even if she weren't 12, even well, if she was... We're going to get to a grown 50. woman who they did the same thing to. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, but it terrible. did permanent damage to her, to her spine. Um, and she wasn't the only one to sustain a spinal injury. Let's hear from Ellen Burstyn, who sustained something in the scene where it looks like Ellen Burstyn gets like sort of thrown off of the mm-hmm. bed by Linda Blair. I had a rig around my midriff with a wire coming out the back, and the stuntman was pulling me. So we took her back the first time, and it was a good shot. And Billy said, "Um, we're going to do it again. I said, Billy, he's pulling me too hard. I can get hurt. And Billy said, well, it has to look real. I said, I understand, but I'm telling you, I could get hurt. And the stuntman was standing there listening to this, and Billy said to him, okay, don't pull her so hard. But as I turned away, I felt them exchange a look. And he said, give it to her this time. (laughs) And I said, really? And he says... Give it to her. And this is Ellen Burstyn, right? She's a nice lady. And so I said, okay. So when I hauled off, she came completely off her feet. You see me hit and you see me reach for my back. I screamed in horrendous pain. Billy motioned to Owen to tilt the camera down on me. And I saw it and I was so furious and said, turn the effing camera off because I couldn't stand that he was willing to just get a quick shot of it before they called the ambulance, you know. Couple things. Uh-huh. Uh, this stunt guy has got a weird vibe. Really weird. Yeah, it's like, well, it's just this is how we do it in the movie biz. It's like you're talking about hurting people and admitting yeah. that you're hurting people. It's very strange. Well, it's Definitely. almost it's almost like Every time he's just leaning on the fact that he had the express permission of William right. Friedkin. And it's as if he's in the army and it's like, well, it was the orders. Exactly. But it's like th- that just shows you how much perceived power the director had, but also how other people, I think, used that as an excuse as well on set. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, the stunt coordinator's job, at least, is now, to not hurt people, it's to protect the actors. Yes. And. and from a more cynical perspective, it's to ensure that there's not like a workers comp claim on the production, but really more than that, it's like you need to, we, I, he is at, there as a barrier between the director and dangerous things. Um, not this and guy. It, it also does remind me too of the moment in the abyss when mm-hmm. uh, Ed Harris gets up and it's just like, you're not even rolling right now. You know what I mean? It's kind of the inverse of that moment with, um, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio um, doing her topless scene and mm-hmm. James Cameron. It's an ex- there's like an exploitative quality to it. Yeah. Um, in this case, and you can tell when they slow mo it in this clip, and you watch her hit the ground. You're like, yeah. oh yeah, she's just clear. It looks like she like landed on her tailbone or something, and just like yeah, really it it pulls it. her straight back from the middle of her back. Um, Terrible. So a couple more examples of this in the movie shocking that there are more but there are um for father Karras's fall at the end of the film the one where he dives out that window and down those Mm -hmm. steps yeah 
The shot that William Friedkin wanted, basically the way it was explained to the stuntman, they decided the only way to make it look real was for him to really fall down all 92 steps of that Georgetown staircase. Um, They padded the steps with rubber, but that guy did it. He did a headfirst dive down 92 steps. They did more than one take of this, of him doing it. And apparently uh, there were Georgetown students. This is Jason Miller talking about this. He said that they actually sold tickets on the rooftops to watch him do a headfirst dive down those stairs over and over again. It's crazy. And it's so funny they made him do the whole thing when it's like, I think in the movie it's cut into like three or four shots. Oh you know my what God. I mean? It's cut and it's also like, it's like choppy and weird the way that yeah, they yeah. do the f- shooting of it. So that could yeah. totally have been a doll. Feels unnecessary in a lot of ways. For sure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Just briefly, there is sort of the lore of the curse of The Exorcist. Um, There were no fewer than nine deaths during and immediately after filming. Um, both the actor who played Burke Dennings, who is the director that she does push out the window, he dies almost as soon as filming ends. What happened? How did he die? Natural causes. I think he died of a heart attack. Um, Jesus. The woman who played Father Karras's mother, uh, who's a Greek woman, also passed away as soon as cameras stopped rolling. And creepy that they've also both died in the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. A night watchman on set died. The newborn baby of a camera assistant died. Max von Sydow's brother died. Linda Blair's grandmother died. Um, Jason Miller's son was actually almost killed by a motorcycle on an empty beach is one description I saw of the accident. Okay. It's very strange. Really weird. (laughs) Um, And then there are two more that I couldn't find exactly who passed away. But uh, Ellen Burstyn insists that there were nine deaths affiliated with the project. So William Friedkin said, quote, I don't have any enemies. Presumably there are people who don't like me, but I wouldn't call them enemies, and I didn't then. The studio executives were just objects that I had to get by to do what I wanted. The same was true for all of us back then, Coppola, Bogdanovich, and Spielberg. Talk about getting fired. We were getting fired every day. I got fired about five times from The Exorcist. My producer would get the phone call and then simply hang up. So that's that's his experience of this. <laughs> However, contrast that with Linda Blair, whose entire life essentially becomes colored by The Exorcist. At 13 years old, this movie comes out. She's receiving death threats. Um, On the other side of that, she's being expected by reporters to talk about Catholicism and God and the devil, uh, Mm -hmm. 
Warner Brothers ends up having to hire bodyguards for her for more than six months after the movie um, due to the death threats. Despite her obvious talent as an actress, um, this completely encompassed her her career. She didn't really have another defining role. Um, she keeps working. She's still working. But it's certainly not what it could have been. Uh, mm. Friedkin gets to move right on to an incredible career, including films such as Sorcerer, Cruising, To Live and Die in L.A., Killer Joe, and many more. Something I found really interesting when I was researching this is that for all the talk of Friedkin talking about this movie like a documentary, he actually never saw a real exorcism prior to making this movie. It wasn't until 2017 when he does see one for the first time. And that's when he makes the documentary The Devil and Father Amorth following a priest performing his ninth exorcism. On finally seeing a real exorcism, here is what Friedkin said. It was terrifying. I went from being afraid of what could happen to feeling a great deal of empathy with this woman's pain and suffering. Awfully interesting, given the way that he treated a 12-year-old girl on the set of his movie. So that about wraps it up for The Exorcist. (laughs) Uh, I have a sixth clip. Did you want me to play it? Uh, I skipped it. You know what? It's going to creep you out. So yeah, why don't you play this? Uh, This clip that Chris is referencing... um, This is Friedkin talking about how he interacted with Linda Blair on set and how he got her to give the performance that she gives. ...and of surrogate father to Linda. I would very often kid her into doing something. I would say to her, now you're going to have to take this crucifix and you're going to have to pretend that you are thrusting it between your legs. And she would say, oh, no, like a little girl. She was 12 years old. She'd say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'd say, oh, yes, you are. Oh, yeah, come on. And I would kid her into it. I'd start tickling her, making her laugh. I think it was her affection for me that allowed her to do things that had probably never been asked of a child, and certainly not in a movie. It was about mutual trust. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> what? I know. I mean, the the killer thing uh, is like... Painfully unself-aware, man. <laughs> I know. The thing is, he like he does get unbelievable performances out of these people. The movie is absolutely incredible. It does feel real. That is part of the horror of it. But... Uh, I think that part of the problem, though, and, and you know, to, to bring this all to a, to a close... In art, it's ex- we've historically deemed it acceptable for an artist to abuse themselves or take their own pain and translate that into something creative for us to consume. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's challenging with, or where it gets, I think, ethically complicated at best and at worst just pass you know leaves complicated and becomes gross really quickly is in movies when the director is the manager but there are a number of people and artists present etc and it's a work environment and then they are pushing people to do things that maybe they'd be comfortable doing you know we've talked about james cameron for example um but ultimately they're setting boundaries for those around them in an environment where to say no 
yeah will draw the ire of not only everyone around you but the studio that you're working for and potential opportunities down the line the pressure of any actor to just say yes to whatever the director especially a big director you know like William Friedkin wants is going to be incredibly high so I think that the question we have to ask ourselves is you know as people who consume movies and for us like work tangentially in this business is what are we going to allow you know as acceptable behavior from these people and are we going to let the fact that they just made something great justify the abuse because like you said it's like yeah they got you know he got great performances he made a great movie steven spielberg's made great movies and my understanding is he's never slapped anybody and he's never broken anyone's backs either and well so did Sidney lumet and you know a number of other people it it comes down to something that jason miller actually said about uh about him firing the gun off next to his head he i'm paraphrasing but he basically said like what pissed him off the most about it is he was like Billy, I'm an actor. Like, it's my job to recreate that response. I don't need the stimulation there to do it for me. It's almost like it's it's like he's taking their job away from them to a certain degree by sort of like manually creating all of this stimulation. Um, And by the way, just to end on a bit of a light note, what William Friedkin said to Jason Miller when Jason Miller said, you know, basically like what happens if you accidentally shoot me in the fucking head? Uh, William Friedkin goes, don't worry, we have Jack Nicholson waiting in the wings. <laughs> Great. <laughs> really fun. All right. So, Chris, uh, what went right? Uh, I mean, what went right is they made an incredible, an incredible movie. Um, and what went wrong is that they had to ruin at, you know, worst someone's life to, to do it. And at, at, at its lightest, at least se- severely damaged them with, yeah. Linda, with Linda Blair. Um, and also what went wrong is it, it perpetuates, it furthers this idea that the only way to make a movie this good was there's no counterfactual. So it's like he had to do this to get this version of the movie made. We don't know that that's true. Yeah. We don't. There's no, it, it, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, we're going to do Apocalypse Now coming up and francis ford coppola nearly got everyone killed literally (laughs) making that movie and it's one of the best war movies ever but i think we can all look to saving private ryan where steven spielberg was shooting that thing ahead of schedule and everyone was feeling great uh and say no you don't have to simulate the hells of vietnam in order to make a movie and you don't need to destroy a girl in the same way that the devil would literally to get that performance from her necessarily. And I think it's more actually, I think what we need to start looking at it as is it's actually more of an indictment of the director's talent for them to need to resort to schlocky tactics that are damaging to the people on set. uh, than it is a compliment to their dedication to the craft or ingenuity. And so I think we need to flip that on its head. I will actually, I'll call out a what went right uh, and, and give William Friedkin some, some credit. One of the most incredible things that he did on this set was the way that he envisioned a lot of these shots that we kind of take for granted today. A lot of things that you'd be able to get with a Steadicam um, mm-hmm. and and some other 
types of sort of crane shots and rigs that are readily accessible now that were not invented then. Um, if you watch some of the behind the scenes, the the way that he and the the cameramen actually worked together to create some of these shots is really incredible and really cool. And it did kind of lead to the sort of technology that we have today. Um, one shot, there's a tracking shot where it follows them up the stairs all mm-hmm. the way to the top. And they actually had to dangle a cameraman on a wire, basically. They put him in a harness and on a wire, and they sat him on this little like swing seat almost. And they had him, and they just literally dragged him up the stairs, and they had to light it so there were no shadows whatsoever. And he just followed the assistant all the way up the stairs. Um, And that was their version of a Steadicam. Um, Yeah. So I I will say like he he is an amazing he is an amazing talent um, absolutely and it is an amazing movie but at what cost yeah and I think that what the what went right too is they didn't feel the need to over explain the movie and the mythology and whatnot in the no. way that I think a lot of horror films are forced to maybe right now uh, like all the mythology needs to make sense and we need to be able to understand it and I just liked how ambiguous the movie was at the end of the day. I agree with that. All right. So just to wrap this up, we do have one request from all of you lovely listeners, which is if you have a minute, please leave us a review. It would just, it would mean so much and we'd very much appreciate it. Five Uh, stars, five stars. Five stars, but but also some words. Uh, And when you're leaving these reviews, guys, try to keep it professional and not make it personal. No, I disagree. I disagree. (laughs) Personally attack Chris as much as possible. Okay, bye. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Euthana Uos.